they're women, they're people of color, they're children. They are people who, for whatever reason, on their path, no one saw the beauty and the joy and the potential mm-hmm. of what can happen if you nurture it in that moment. Mm-hmm. And so it became really clear, like that happens with food all the time. People have things they have no idea what to do with. I remember I went to a farmer's market and I was looking for what are called seconds. And so seconds are those produce that the farmer or whoever deems subpar. Like if it's not sold today, it's going to get thrown. I remember there were radishes of all these different colors and the farmer was selling them with the actual greens. And it was just in a bag on the ground. And I was just, and I was like, are you, what are you going to do with those? He's like, do you want these? I'm like, yeah. He's like, people didn't want them. They just wanted the radishes. They didn't know that greens were edible. And they're freaking delicious. Like, Oh, wow. And so it was a great opportunity to, from a culinary perspective, to find the things that people don't see worth in, but turn them into this delicious thing that people are like, who knew? Well, now you know. Jason and Yvonne Lee, wife, husband, father, mother, actors, producers, and seekers, educators, explorers of identity. You're listening to Lager Lane Spirits, a delicious podcast where we invite you into our living room for a family spirit symposium, a real talk meeting of the minds over reverent cocktails. Join us as we dive back in time to examine the legacy of our ancestors that have shaped the stories of our shared cultural history. You can find all of our cocktail recipes and show notes on lageralanespirits.com. And as always, please enjoy. Responsibly. People will forget what you said. People will forget what you did. But people will never forget how you make them feel. Maya Angelou. If you really want to make a friend, go to someone's house and eat with him. The people who give you their food give you their heart. Cesar Chavez. Feeling good, feeling fine, using story like a glass of wine. Feeling good, feeling fine, giving our heart to you, food for the mind. <laughs> Welcome to our last episode of season two. Yes, yes, dear friends. Welcome. Now, now I've got to kick off our chat by repeating the quote from the top of the show. My quote from the top of the show, which is, if you really want to make a friend, go to someone's house and eat with him. The people who give you their food, give you their heart. Cesar Chavez. Now, I, I, I. I just, I really dig that quote and I, I relate to it. I, I'm just, re- I remember when I first moved to uh, Los Angeles in 2000, I, I lived down in Echo Park and that's right around the area where Sunset Boulevard becomes Cesar Chavez Boulevard. And uh, I'd grown up knowing about uh, his work with the migrant workers here in Southern California, but it really kind of brought home when I moved here and became a Los Angelino. Uh, transplanted Los Angelinos by way of Chicago. I became more and more aware of 
of his legacy and his work and his friendship with like Bobby Kennedy and and uh, and, and and all of his work here in, in Southern California. And it, that quote really resonates with me because of his food strike. If somebody had that relationship with food to, that he explores in that quote to then go on a food strike, that takes it to a whole other magnitude uh, for me. And it kind of launches me into this conversation, Yvonne, we're about to have today. I, I feel like this show has been an open invitation to our dining room table. Yeah. You know, I love that quote as well, because I think that's how I operate. I always make sure your side of the family was in town. And all I know is that when we're hosting, I was like, I always try to make sure that there's something for someone to eat. Yes. Whether I make it from my own hands or I say, okay, let's, you know, postmate it, which is kind of yes. the new, that's the new thing. And COVID times, you just postmate it so you don't have to go out. But <laughs> I do, I do really, I love this idea um, that whatever's in my home is also yours and you should not leave my house hungry. And your family represents that, right? Like you're, you're, you're the Huff family. When it, I remember when we first started dating and I, you brought me to your mom's home in Phoenix and, and you all were in the kitchen just whipping up a meal. I, I the tradition I grew oh, up yes. around was, was around cocktails. You guys grew up around the kitchen, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely a part of, and I think it became even more as we got older, food was a way for even us as siblings and as, you know, with my mom to connect because we all went to different schools and different mm -hmm. parts of the country. And so with this show, the conversation is the food and all the delicious morsels <laughs> within that conversation. I hear you. I hear you, my dear wife. I see you. And I know where you're going with that. My baby sister is here. <laughs> Chef B.B. Huff in the house. Now, your, your mom, Natividad, a.k.a. Mama Natty Huff, was, was our guest in season one. And now we close this awesome Lager Lane Spirits season two with your sister for our season finale. I'm really excited about our conversation today because we'll be talking about storytelling as we have been, you know, all season, but we're going to do it with the focus on how food, just like film, is a vehicle for using your voice to tell your own story. I love this topic because it's something we have all experienced in our own way, in our own home. But tonight, you are going to hear about the very special way my sister, who is an acclaimed chef, yes, I'm proud, is bringing storytelling and food together to create meaningful connection and deep intimacy. Sorry, intimacy. <laughs> I meant to say, and deep intimacy. It's a good cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very good cocktail. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating, right? For anyone new listening to Lager Lane Spirits, it bears repeating that, that we are actors, producers, financiers, parents, and so many other things. But in our hearts, we are storytellers. We provide opportunity for others to tell their stories through our company, the Lagra Lane Group, and we also create and tell our own. Yep, exactly. Like your short film, Lifeline, which has been enjoying a very nice festival run and appeared at the Lighthouse International Film Festival most recently. Yes, yes. And, and in the way that I wrote that film, finding the right words to convey what I was wanting folks to feel and, and dire directing wise, trying to capture the shots that, that could best capture the, the intimacy of what we were exploring was it's almost like how your sister uses ingredients and dishes, right? To mm -hmm. tell a very personal and intimate story for, or I guess about her clients and 
probably herself too. And we'll talk more specifics with her later on the show. But right now, let's let's look at the big picture of how story preserves culture and frames identity. This season, we've solidified that when you take action by telling your own story, this action helps you take your rightful place in the room. It can also open doors and create access for others. One of the broad strokes we talked about this season is the idea of knowing self first. So, so that you know when to stay and when to leave when it comes to whether your story yourself is being honored or disrespected in a situation. Right. That, that sort of came out of, came out in episode one of season two, right? Like with our guests, DeMille Halliburton and Monique Marshall, when we talked about systems of oppression and also in episode two with our guests, Chaz Ebert and Brenda Robinson, when we talked about the magic of black spaces and faces in film development and production. Right. And in their own way, our guests this season have been faced with pivotal moments when they did what they needed to preserve story, whether about something like identity or about people of color or when they needed to abandon story. I mean, for one of our guests, it was about abandoning a narrative about herself that she'd been holding on to and wasn't allowing herself to see the full picture of her identity. Yeah. yeah. Another broad stroke this season was about history. His story. Uh, uh, get it, Yvonne? His story. Waka, waka, waka. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I get it. His yeah. story. I also yeah, like some, not, her story. Her, I'm I'm just, just, their, their story, our story. <laughs> uh, look, I love me some history. Okay. Hey, Jason, mm-hmm. maybe you should write a his story book. <laughs> Well, hey, hey, check me this summer, babe, and you'll see me sipping Syrah in the south of France, putting pen to paper on my next project. True story. Yes. But anyway, so many moments in the past affect us today. We've talked this season about the history and reality of caste in the U.S. and how Mm -hmm. it must inform the action we take today. It's been a fascinating exploration for me. Yes, and, and me too. And... The art and story of food, our topic today, connects us to our past in a similar way. I mean, actually, I think it's pivotal in maintaining our connection to the past. So I have a question for you, a little hors d'oeuvres for our listeners. All right. What are your thoughts on food's role in preserving culture? (laughs) That's interesting for me to answer because uh, that's an interesting question, Yvonne. Um, I'll ask it one more time just in case it stuns anybody. Let me just say it one more time. What are your thoughts on food's role in preserving culture? What are my thoughts on food's role in preserving culture? That throws me back to season one, our exploration of my adoption. I grew up in the Midwest and all due respect to the parents that raised me. We grew up on a lot of fast food, you know, and and I'm not talking about double Big Macs and whatnot, you know, like in today's world, I'm talking about, you know, 1970s and 1980s fast food. I'm remembering going to like Long John Silver with my father after my parents got divorced. That was like a special time to bond and connect with my dad, right? I can't imagine him at that time being like 40 years old, newly divorced with three kids and trying to find ways to connect and eat with us. But One thing I learned as I became an adult myself and became a man, I learned about my black side through food, right? Especially at 
barbecues. Hmm. We have some dear friends who whenever we have a barbecue, will come on by the house and be like, yo, okay, Jason, it's okay. I got the grill. And I'll be like, no, man, no, I'm, I'm going to go. He's like, no, dude, no, I got the grill. Go and socialize, go mingle. You're hosting. That's what I'm here for. And there was a dude thing about that. There's a culture to that, right? So I guess yeah. my answer would be to your question. It is what you make of it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. How do you feel about that? Well, I think that being black and Filipino, and it's interesting because for me, food was really passed down through my mom. Like I knew that I needed to, at some point, I was like, I want to learn how to make adobo, you know? Right. And you make a good adobo. I do make a good adobo, but I make a good adobo because I make it the way that my mom makes it. <laughs> right, right. And once I figured out like what her combination of soy to vinegar was, and and then she added like a European style of doing it, of browning everything before you braise it, because it's basically a braised meal. When I think about a chicken adobo, you know, one of the things, and in so many cultures, using soy and using some kind of acid, you did it that way because there wasn't refrigeration. There wasn't, right. there weren't the things out there to help the food stay for a long time. So you used, you know, the natural preservatives in soy and in acid. And so you could eat it, you know, you could make a right. bunch and then it would last for a few days. But that is probably the main way for me that I have passed down the culture of food through, you know, the Filipino experience. And it's the one that's really connected me to my Filipino culture is food. And, you know, to add on to all of that and prep for our conversation today, I was reading an article about food as a communication tool for culture and everything from where we get it to the way we prepare it, how we consume it. And even, you know, who is at the table to enjoy it? It conveys a rich cultural history. And that history then gets passed along to every generation that continues to eat, prepare, and share the dishes of their ancestors. I think that food carries story naturally because mm-hmm. it's something that has to be taught through hands and, and words and from person to person. And I think living in the States, and because we're not a homogenous culture per se, everybody's come from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Um, Within each family, whoever's table you go to eat at, you learn something about their culture and their history and how they experience being an American. You know, I've always like wanted someone to invite me over for like any Jewish holiday, Hanukkah, and I wanted to eat at their table. And I was like, I want somebody to invite me over so I could see what happens in your home when you eat. (laughs) Yeah. Things like that, you know, just remembered over COVID how you how you got so fascinated by Korean barbecue. Yes. And you bought the the little barbecue. The kit, the grill, kit the outdoor the, grill. And we sat outside and everybody had to cook their own food. It was really fun. <laughs> you know, for me, from my adoption lens, these are lovely memories that I have of my adopted mother, Pam, but she would make tuna casserole. We were Tupperware families in the late 70s there and early 80s, you know, and I get weepy even when you make the meatloaf because it reminds me of my I mom's know, meatloaf. Me but, you you know, our big meals were like Thanksgiving and Christmas. It wasn't like, you know, Tuesday. We were a Chef Boyardee family. We were just like, let's eat and go. So our culture, the culture I grew up around, 
And this is why, Yvonne, my dear, lovely wife, we are a match made in heaven. Your food culture. I grew up around cocktails. I learned how to pour my grandfather's scotch for him when I was seven years old, you know. And so the bar element was our kind of connecting. I don't mean that we were drinking young, but we were socializing that way with with our elders. And we were learning at cocktail parties with little bowls of goldfish crackers passing around, you know, how the adults were mm-hmm. were getting down. And, and you can learn as much around a bar about people's culture and who they are and where they come from as you can in a kitchen at a dinner table, at a dining table. Um, mm-hmm. I just, I, I, mm-hmm. I love the marriage of all of that. And I can't wait to hear what your sister, my sister-in-law, Chef Bibi, has to say about all of this. She'll be coming in here pretty soon. This just brings this full circle before before we move on. Last season, I found out mucho much about my, my birth parents, right? And all this stuff from the past, right? And it really affected me deeply. And the more I've learned and shared about my identity through this podcast in other creative spaces as well, Lifeline, the more I experience firsthand the power of owning one story. Yeah, you definitely had a reckoning. Well, and from my own DNA results. Yes, do tell, because I know I know some of our listeners have been waiting for that information. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did not have the same experience you did with the twisty turning of re- reveals, but my DNA results reinforced, you know, really everything I knew about myself, that I am literally where I come from. It was a, a grounding of what I'd already felt about being Filipina and Black. I mean, I thought that there would be more Chinese or, or Spanish or any yeah. white identifying cultures, lots of other things, but it, but it wasn't there. So what I found was that I was, you know, all of the places in Africa that I'm from are places where slave trade happened. Mm-hmm. And it was just fascinating uh, to me to go, oh, wow. I thought that there'd be some kind of Caucasian line, but there, there wasn't. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking like, the atrocities that happened or a free person who might have married someone who was white or, you know, something like that. I come from, you know, especially on my mom's side, where my mom grew up when we went there for the first time, you know, you had to take like three planes and then a big boat and then a little boat. And so it was remote, very right. remote from the city, very much in the province. And so people stayed within right. those those small communities and didn't go very far. You know, I remember my brother reading what the results were, and he was like, Mama, you got some strong, you got some strong blood. <laughs> like none of us really realized like how how rooted we are in like this very homogenous country. So anyway, it actually made me more excited about learning more of the history of where that part of the area where my mom comes from. You know, just to really see that on my dad's side there wasn't a lot of mixing and to think about enslaved peoples that my my dad's side of the family, like we weren't like in anybody's house. Like nobody right. in my family was like the house Negro. We they were out. Right. They made me think they're out in the fields. They're out right. doing the manual work. There that's what's happened. So to to picture not that many generations ago that that's within my family, um, that it becomes very real. For those for for, those, for people who say, oh, that happened 150 years ago. Why do we need reparations for that? I'm like, come on now. Right. Right. That's not that long ago. You know, we're not that far removed and it's really important to remember. Or maybe this is also true as I'm thinking about it, is that there could also be peoples in my family that were not enslaved and stayed within their own community. So I don't know. There's a big question mark there. But I will say in terms of Huff, all the Huffs that I have seen when I do see a Huff, they're mostly white that I've seen. 
but I'm not saying I probably did about 25 minutes of research on that. So I'll, I, I will give that disclaimer. <laughs> well, we can leave that for a teaser for season three, because I actually yeah. have done research on my ancestry page of my lovely, talented, gifted wife's line. Oh my and God. We, when you showed me that. I will. We Ooh. can, we, we can table that now because we have more things to discuss tonight. Please gentle listener, come back in season three and you'll learn more about Yvonne's people. Things to find out. Things to find out. Yes. Speaking of this, this show is called Loggerlane Spirits. We got to be. Where is our spirit this episode? I'm not going to lie. Ah. School is out. <laughs> <laughs> and mama needs a drink. I need a uh, drink. That's right. That I am chomping at the bit here too. Okay. This season's final drink is called the Ala Ala. And let me tell you why. So... This is a Jason concoction. Um, a lot of our, it's built upon the specs of other drinks, as most drinks are, but this is a con- concoction that I made up myself. And I was thinking about story. You know, we're storytellers, and I was thinking about m- narratives and memoirs. And I got to thinking, I knew we were going to talk to your sister tonight, and I got to thinking about, you know, our lovely trips to the Philippines throughout the years, Yvonne, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh, and I got to thinking about language. And I, I wondered what memory and remembrance translates as into the Tagalog. And so I Google searched it and up came Allah Allah. And that stunned me. It stopped me in my tracks because I I have it right here in front of me. Mm -hmm. My third grade year, my yearbook in 1980, we lived in Manila and I went to the international school in Manila. And the name of the book is Allah Allah. And this is 42 years ago. And I opened up the front page, the, the, the cover of the book. It says, Ala Ala, 1980. And right underneath it, it says the Filipino word for remembrance. And I was like, well, that just is a ridiculous, serendipitous moment. The drink has got to be called Ala Ala. So what we will yeah. drink tonight is an Ala Ala. And what it is, I've muddled sliced peaches, Regan's orange bitters, you know me, I love bitters. If uh, Our listeners, if you've been with us for all of season one and into season two, you know how much I love bitters. So this is a very bitter drink. <laughs> we have so 50 I've muddled, of them here. I've, we, we do. <laughs> I've muddled uh, sliced peaches with Regan's orange bitters, Peshad, charred cedar, and currant from Bitters Lab, and Hella Bitters smoked chili bitters for a little bit of kick. Then... Uh, it's two ounces of, we're, we're drinking some cognac tonight, so it's two ounces of Pierre Ferrand cognac. I'm doing a quarter ounce of, and I know whenever I pronounce this in front of Mama Natty, your mom, she always corrects me, so I, 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 I hope I get this right. It's a quarter ounce of a cognac liqueur called Lambignog. And then we're going to do a half ounce of simple syrup. We'll shake that up. We'll do a half ounce of sparkling water or club soda on top. And then for the garnish, we have a tangerine peel or blood orange peel. Mm. Because of the fruit, that's a shook drink. That will be our cocktail for this evening. That sounds delicious. A la, a la remembrance. Mm, that goes so perfectly with, with talking about history and story and how that translates uh, into right food and drink. Okay, right I think we're ready. Let's call Chef BB. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. 
BB, you there? Hey, what's up? What's up? What's hey. up? <laughs> My sister's here. Yay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How you doing, BB? It's great to have you on. Thank you for taking the time to jump on. It's great to with us here. It's great to have you on our uh, podcast. Well, thank you for having me. You know, I'm always down for a good cocktail and conversation. That's right. That's right. And that's what we <laughs> shall have this evening for sure. So, Bibi, I'm so ha- I'm so excited that you're here, and it's it's interesting to have family talking and have it. So people are kind of invited to our living room. So we've been talking about food, and story, and identity, and culture, and and so we thought, like, how do we talk about like, you know, getting into action and changing the narrative, but use a different art form, and the culinary arts, and um, you were just like the perfect person that really understands all the values that we're talking about because we're family and also because it's uh, it's something that we somehow have developed even in our separate no, paths. It's, 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 a, it's a love language, uh, right? Food is a love language. Yeah. That's the first thing that someone, that you ask someone when they enter your home, have you eaten? What's the first thing you do when you're mm-hmm. going to go collect a loved one from the airport? You make sure something's cooking. So when they come in, they're like, oh, you prepared for me. I'm welcomed here. It's a love language. Mm-hmm. So it's a language that mama was taught and then she taught us. And now mm-hmm. Grace and Maya and Maximo are learning it as well. So it's a dialect. And I've worked with clients who didn't learn that language when they were growing up but it's something that they taught themselves and therefore taught the next generation. You're learning a language that can be smelled, that you can hear, that you can taste, that you can touch, and that you can share with multiple people at a dinner table. It's kind of (laughs) awesome. It is. And like, baby, I was, you mentioned it. I was not raised necessarily with that love letter. I was fed and provided for. But I, I was raised to sit down around the bar. And the first things we were asked were, are you are you thirsty? Your sister's and mine's marriage is, is a marriage made in heaven because you all have the love quotient of the kitchen. And then I come in with a cocktail to hopefully kind of mm-hmm. like lift it off to an, another level too. And then we just sit down and chop it up. And so I just wanted to take a quick second to talk about the origin of Lagraline spirits and introduce tonight's cocktail because you basically... On BB inspired <laughs> us to launch into what has become Lagerlane Spirits with your work before you launched Salted Parlor. But your storytelling work inspired me to examine my research in, in ancestry and create cocktails that have a story of location, that have a, a grounding in it, that have a deeper story than just let's sit down and, and booze, right? And so tonight's drink is also inspired by your family. Uh, in name, I've created this drink myself. I've named it Ala Ala, which is Tagalog for remembrance and memory. But I would love to hear about how you came upon the name, the Salted Parlor, and your work there as you launched your catering company. First of all, it's, a, it's an awesome sounding cocktail, and I can't wait to like get into the bits of like what's in it. Because everyone wants a little ala ala in their lives. I'm just saying. (laughs) One big rock, yeah. Right on. So the salted parlor is something 
that organically grew out of family. So let's talk about that. I named it the Salted Parlor Mm. one because everything needs a little bit of salt. It's a flavor enhancer. Salt anoints. It purifies. And parlor, because that's the place in the house where people come and connect to create community and share stories. In terms of starting the Salted Parlor, again, it just responding to friends and family. Or like, I want, I love your food. I want you to cook for me. Um, starting 100% full time, which is about a year. Look at me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Look at you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And it came from a place of it's time to be my own boss. I mean, we talk about pandemic, and it was the generation of resignation. I don't know. I, w- I don't know if I would claim that for myself as much as releasing myself of the fear of failure, releasing myself of fear, period. And part of that's just like, I'm done. (laughs) Oh, yes. Um, (laughs) I'm done. Your origin story of Salted Parlor is similar to our origin story of Lagra Lane Group. You want to gain control of whatever you can in the space that you can control it. And I'm just remembering, you know, going on an audition with Maya 10 years ago and being at the beck and call of whoever was sending me on this audition. And I was like, this isn't going to work for me because it's 445. I'm on on the 405 and this baby should be having dinner and then I should be giving her a bath and putting her to bed. That's what should be happening right now. How can I create an environment that's conducive to that? And it seems like your Salted Parlor origin story came out of a similar place, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when I talk about the agency that I want for my clients and the people who sit around the table where my food is presented, that comes from giving my, myself agency. And there's something really freeing in shedding the fear that you created yourself and taking a leap and just trusting that the wing's going to come at some point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The wings yeah. are going to come at some point. <laughs> Um, And knowing that you surrounded yourself with family and friends who will not let you fail. And I'm blessed in that way. Well, I've told you this before. I was like, Bibi, you're supposed to be the boss. You're trying to work in this corporate world, making them all this money. And all they're doing is using your talents that you could be using for yourself. Everybody has those same fears that you just explained but being able to like leverage the privileges that we have that other people don't get, you know, they don't get the loving family. Even our family was unstable for a lot of our lives <laughs> and that don't get, but you had people who stepped in to make sure that you didn't fall through the cracks. So leveraging those privileges and knowing that it's our responsibility to use them and use them for good, you know? And when you get the opportunity, throw down the way you've been throwing down, right? When you get that opportunity, do it, go hard. Um, And the idea of doing storytelling through food actually came with my very first proper gig for Greg and Virulin. Oh yeah. Those of you who are listening, um, Greg. And Greg was the officiant at Yvonne and Jason's wedding. For our listeners, real quick, Greg Daniel, Verilyn Jones are our partners in our nonprofit Lower Depth Theater. They're dear, dear friends of ours. For people who may not know Greg, he's probably 
one of the most acclaimed directors in theater in LA, I would say globally, but he's one of the most humble about his accomplishments and doesn't like to talk about it like boastfully or anything like that. But his wife has no problem. So, (laughs) and working with her, we basically created a menu for his 60th birthday that took a dish for every decade of his life and made that edible. So for example, he had really deep Jamaican roots as well as roots in London. And so we did this traditional English trifle, but brought in Jamaican flavor profiles, which was just delicious. One of his greatest accomplishments is having a daughter who was a flower child at your wedding. That's right. Kennedy. Um, Yes. Yes. Kennedy. And so that's the only child that they had. And so I was like, we're going to do lamb. Hmm. And I didn't know at the time when I put it on the menu that they're like, that's my favorite meat, (laughs) lamb. And so it became this opportunity where the food became a character and a play on this set that was his 60th birthday. And it was a way to acknowledge his accomplishments, some of which people may not have even known, but do it in a way that made it engaging for the guests. They understood why the food was there, the intention behind it. And so that's where it started. And as you explain his 60th birthday, that also reminds me, Bibi, of of the Sundance Festival. It's just a really cool concept. That was such a fun project. For those of you listening, this was the Chicago Media Project, and Sundance was a way for them to give a big thank you to folks who were willing to invest in independent film. And this sort of links back to being in the culinary world. This is my second career. My first career was doing 15, 20 years of fundraising, which really informs how I approach projects because they have an experience that they want to have. They're not quite sure how to get there, but they know it's important to them. Some people might feel like they don't have a story, but when you ask open-ended, authentic searching for your individual truth questions, then they realize like, yeah, I do have a story. So working with the Salted Parlor, telling people's story through culinary experiences is is an extension of the work that I did for 15, 20 years, helping people connect to missions that resonated with them in a meaningful, authentic way and giving them, them an opportunity to have impactful agency in the communities that they're part of. Now it just happens around the table. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone hit up Chef Beebe. She's brilliant. She's brilliant. You know, right now we're kind of clocking the moment of, you know, Greg's 60th birthday. And then the next one was, you just talked about Sundance. Sundance Sundance doing the Chicago Media Project. Then there was Safe Harbor as well. Right. Safe Harbor was a play um, that our theater company, Laura Depp, Theater did with our friends, Greg and Verilyn, who we mentioned earlier. Um, they are co-founders in creating the company. And we created a lower depth salon. This was right before the pandemic. It was fall, winter of 2019. It was our first ever lower depth salon. And we wanted to figure out how can we translate the story of Safe Harper, which was written by... Our friend Tira Palmquist, oh who's a... Tira, just, the wonderful Tira Palmquist. She's a, an extraordinary human playwright and friend of ours, and Safe Harbor deals with the complicated issues and themes surrounding human trafficking. And so it's a kind Child of a sex compli- trafficking. It's a hard play, but she brought a humanity to it that was so, so right on. And so 
talking to you, Bibi, about how can we, we want to have a conversation about this. And I said, this is what the play's about. How do we turn this story into food? And you said, oh, it's about turning lemons into lemonade. And I was like, yeah, it's about taking things that people would rather like say no to and imbuing them with hope and imbuing them with flavor and imbuing them with the beautiful story that is yet to be told. You guys put me in contact with the playwright Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and she was basically like, how are you going to make this edible? (laughs) No one wants to eat sex trafficking. Right. She's like, how are you going to do this? Right. But when she started to sharing with me about her research into the project, about who are these, who are the victims? They're, you know, they're, they're women, they're people of color, they're children. They are people who, for whatever reason, on their path, no one saw the beauty and the joy and the potential mm-hmm. of what can happen if you nurture it in that moment. Mm-hmm. And so it became really clear, like that happens with food all the time. People have things they have no idea what to do with. I remember I went to a farmer's market and I was looking for what are called seconds. And so seconds are those produce that the farmer or whoever deems subpar. Like if it's not sold today, it's going to get thrown. And so I specifically went asking farmers, like, what are your, where are your seconds? And I got the best peaches anyone has ever seen. In this. They like were juicy, juicy, juicy. They were bruised. They were odd colors. But from the purposes that I was going to use them, they were, they were delicious. And I remember they were radishes of all these different colors. And the farmer was selling them with the actual greens. And it was just in a bag on the ground. And I was just, and I was like, are you, what are you going to do with those? He's like, do you want these? I'm like, yeah. He's like, people didn't want them. They just wanted the radishes. They didn't know that greens were edible. And they're freaking delicious. Like, oh, wow. And so it was a great opportunity to, from a culinary perspective, to find the things that people don't see worth in, but turn them into this delicious thing that people are like, who knew? Well, now you know. Mm-hmm. That actually gave me more of an appreciation of food as art. And the purpose of art is to help people heal and see new perspectives and to really reflect upon themselves in their in their relationship to the world. And and when you said, let's take the broccoli stalks and you the, the part usually people just save the florets. And you know, you kind of get trained that way when you go to the grocery store because they separate the stalk from the flowers. And so you took them and put them in these beautiful, like rectangular pieces and you fried them. <laughs> oh, they <laughs> were awesome. so beautiful. When and, I just you know, I peeled off the, the thick part, I mean, if you spend the time just peeling that off, yeah. or just use the knife to cut it and you fry them, they actually taste like sunchokes. They're freaking yeah. delicious. Yeah. So it was cool. And, and then what ended up happening, you know, is that Actually, DeMille Halliburton, who was in our first episode, he talked about food deserts and he talked about what it was in Inglewood and what it was like where, you know, there's no Whole Foods there. You have to go to Santa Monica for a farmer's market and how people were not investing in that neighborhood. Yeah, there's liquor stores and smoke shops. Yeah. Right. You're not investing in that neighborhood for people who need nutritious food. And that's what was so 
so gorgeous about all of that. I remember, Yvonne, our conversations throughout the years about what you've wanted with regards to when we produce a play or a film or you want other art forms to be influenced as well, right? Like you want a poem, you want a haiku, you know, a dance, right? Other explorations of the theme being explored in the story. And both of you have that same understanding and creativity and I wonder if you both would just want to riff on where that came from for you guys. I mean, did you guys have conversations growing up together? Because you, what you're exploring, maybe not just in the food space, but in your developmental work, like you mentioned earlier, is similar to what your sister has been exploring in her creative storytelling film and TV and theater career throughout the years. And I just, I'm fascinated that you both have that shared but different thrust. You know... I always get the question, like, how did you learn to cook? And where'd that start? And, and the reality is, we're latchkey kids. Like, give me a packet of ramen and some yeah. hot dogs and an egg and some frozen <laughs> spinach. <laughs> and a packet of right soy sauce. <laughs> I want to crush that. I, I was like, how do I get creative with all of this stuff? What do I have? Ooh. And even when I went to college, I was like, I'm cooking. I'm going to cut up this this green onion. I'm going to swirl <laughs> this egg just so that strips just long enough so that it's swirling in there. Part of it is necessity, right? Right. They say necessity is the mother, the mother of invention. Of invention. Uh, yeah. I also have very clear memories of one big, super huge food buy at the beginning of the month. Mm-hmm. And that's when things would go into the freezer, they go into the pantry, they go into the fridge, and everything else mm-hmm. came from the garden. Because we went to the commissary. Um, on the Luke Air Force Base. Right, mm-hmm. right. But also the necessity knowing, like, when you got towards the end of the month, you had what you had. You had to get creative with it. And also being clear that when the pantry and the fridge were full, it was a sign of times were good. And mm. when it wasn't so full, times were not good. So for me, this connection of joy of having a bountiful table and wanting mm-hmm. that experience for people that you care about. There's a reason why this is a love language, right? I remember I'm like, okay, life is good. We got lobster, we got crab legs. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, we're going to Red Lobster. Yes, I said that, Red Lobster. <laughs> oh my God, um, I loved it when we went to Red Lobster. I've never been in the past five years, but yes. <laughs> It, it, it was a starting point. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I also, I, I clock our trips, Yvonne, to uh, Giwon. But the one thing I saw in the two times I've been to your mother's home in, in Giwon, in the Philippines, and I remember having uh, adobo at an auntie's home and the food was plentiful. And I was like, where's all this food coming from? I don't know how to better articulate that. It just amazed me the attention to uh, to you're here now, your family, we're eating. And that was just really... You're here now and I'm going to feed you. because I'm going to feed you. Yeah. 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 That's a love language. Yeah. I also want to take a little sidestep and talk about action that you guys are talking about around food. I never take a client unless I meet with them for like 30 minutes on the phone, Zoom, and I share with them my philosophy and my approach to food. And I thoroughly believe in family style because the family that eats together stays together. I firmly believe that 
one should have the agency to place whatever they want on their food, on their plate. It's not because someone else gave it to them and says, this is what you get to eat. So even that minimal level of action of agency about choosing what you put on your plate, I think is powerful. Even from a young age, this is where children start flexing their independence muscles, right? What they wear, what they eat. Can you think of a, of a meal that you created when you were telling a story that you were like, oh man, that meal, it was right on. Oh gosh, I did a three-day women's retreat in January 22 this year. And it's a, a retreat where people are doing really awesome work about releasing that which no longer serves us, all this sort of internal work to make to, so they can be their, their best selves. If there was a session in the morning, the lunch that I served reflected what was the work that they were doing in the morning so that the, the conversation could continue. Oh gosh, that was an awesome menu. It was a lot of hard work. It was an awesome freaking menu. <laughs> so one of the most difficult portions that they did was answering the question, if but not for this thing that happened in my life that was traumatic and the moment, I wouldn't be on the path that I am and sort of mm. recognizing what that is. Mm. And when I first approached how to create this into a meal, I was just like, okay, bitterness. How do I, bitter? I was like, oh, bitter moments happen in life. And so like, what do you do with that? So I was approaching it from the left, right? Like, how do you deal with these bitter moments when I should have been approaching it from the right, which was in the culinary world, bitter is awesome. Bitter can define a dish. In the cocktail yes, space, bitter, Jason. come on, I'm there with you 100%. Yes, Jason. We talked to you. And so uh -huh. when I shared with them that we're doing a Moroccan tagine, we're working with like all the bitter things. Oh, what's the, the lemon that's pickled? Um, yeah. And yeah. Jason, you have them in your fridge. Uh, yes. you have I them know, in your we fridge do. With my jealous seats. <laughs> Listeners, I can right like now. tell you exactly where it is in the fridge with my jealousy. It's hanging out there. Preserved lemon. Boom. Preserved yes, lemon. Yes, it's yes, preserved lemon. Yes. 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 Preserved lemon is super, super, super like sour, but it's typically used in a way where it basically infuses its flavor into, into something, right? And so I made this a Moroccan tagine and an actual tagine. It was fun. And I had people like taste the preserved lemon by itself and they're like oh my gosh that's really bitter and then I had them taste it after when I was in the broth and it really doesn't taste like anything because it's basically given itself to the broth to the sauce and based on all the other different sweet salt sour umami components and the braising liquid it brought that bitterness to heal right but if you ever want to get authentic with Moroccan cooking you need preserved lemon like that bitterness has a place and it can actually be a beautiful defining thing that if it's missing, it's not an authentic dish. So again, funny to your point, like a dish that was like banging, it, that, that for me personally, I had to switch my brain about how I was thinking about this moment mm. and how it was something to release versus something to embrace. So you really learned and something so, yourself. Oh yeah, totally. Because of what? Totally the story was that the people were trying to tell like it gave you as much as you were trying to give exactly exactly mm. and sometimes people are scared of bitter but like jason you know don't all be, about the bitters don't be scared of bitters do not be scared of bitters 
Dear family, I think we could go on and on in this conversation. Oh, yes, we're ready. <laughs> Are you ready for your cocktail confession? Okay. It might feel like you've already confessed, but you haven't. <laughs> One of the most common ways, you know, we use food is in the construction of our personal identities. And, you know, two of the things that I think of for our family here and taking mama's legacy is like making adobo. And then we came up with a new one over the pandemic where I was like, let's do a birthday cookie. So those are two things I hope that our family will always pass on is how to make adobo and how to make a birthday cookie cake rather than buying something from the store. And so this leads me to your cocktail confession question. Is food central or trivial to the formation of someone's identity? And do you think it has the power to transform hearts and minds later in life? I think it depends on the individual. I've met people for whom food isn't really that important to them. It's just an intake of calories that they need for their body to function. So in that instance, like food, it's just, it's not part of their love language. That said, there's a reason why countries have national dishes. Point of pride, a reflection of their agriculture. It depends, again, we're going back to your word, Jason, intentionality. I think that it has the ability to bring people together in powerful ways if it's important to them. You know, in, in my world, I've my best client, people that I work with are the ones like, they came for this. They're here for this. We share the same love language. And then there are folks that they don't. And that's okay. That's okay. That's why I choose to work with the people. We share the same love language because I know beautiful things happen and they appreciate the art that I create for them. I've been transforming hearts and minds for a while now. People have to be willing to go there, right? I, I, and I've worked with people who didn't know it could be a thing. I, I, Jason, I go back to Sundance. The whole idea about taking, what was it, 12 independent films that were accepted into Sundance and making them edible. Mm -hmm. And the house that it was all being cooked in moved from just being a house that where people were staying in to being like a a, a ground base for people to come and talk about and, shared and, space, and yeah. communal shared space for people to not only get good food, but to share what they've been experiencing. And the question was, would this food change the experience? And the answer is, oh, yeah. Yeah. There's so much going, going on in your answer right now, BB. And I just have to sh share this. My biological mother's people were Germans who settled along the Volga River, and there was a massive famine. There were several massive famines in the Vol along the Volga in Russia in the 1920s and before in the 1880s, and it led to uh, exoduses out of the region because you couldn't eat. Like when the food runs out, things change, things things shift, and it impacts cultures. And like you mentioned earlier, BB, about you know the commissary, if the cupboards are, are full on January 1st, but they're kind of running out by January 24th, then you make do with what you have, right? And the storyteller in me wants to tell more of those stories as well about how we nourish and nurture ourselves. I hope that made sense. No, it, you're, you're making total sense because 
there's layers to that question aside from the semicolon in the middle. Um, <laughs> because if you're coming from a place of just trying to get enough food on the table so that your child will have the mental capacity to learn mm-hmm. 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 versus anything other than that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's a difference. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. You're you're not trying to like get an identity. Right. It's like I'm I'm just trying to get caloric intake into my child so that they can they, they need to eat. Yeah. 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 Brains and they can learn. And yeah. So I'm blessed to be able to answer that question, not starting from that place, if that makes sense. Well that mm-hmm. that uh that leads me to this, Chef BB. This is our season finale. And so I have one final question. If food is a conversation starter, what comes after they leave your table? Mm. Oh, that's an awesome question. Hopefully really good digestion. And <laughs> <laughs> my hope is that the the conversations continue. My hope is that the next time they smell roasted garlic and saffron, that they're reminded of the conversation that they had around that table. My hope is that the next time they have a steak and they're reminded of the sous vide beef tenderloin with salsa verde on it, they're like, oh, I remember that steak. And oh my gosh, remember what we talked about? Food is so sensory, right? And memories are so connected to senses, I should say. And so my hope is that, that the conversation continues even away from the table and that they want to continue to have this type of intimate connection with the food and the people that are around the table, that this becomes their new norm, that they want this love language in their life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so interesting, you know, as I reflect on, that's what we did at the beginning of this particular episode, thinking about all the conversations they were having about identity and exploring those things. And what I love about what we've been talking about is is that when you have access and when you have a community that is there to support you and when you're exposed to other ways of being and doing and when you understand your history, when you are in a place where you understand other people's history, how rich the soil becomes you know, in order to create someone who can actually like realize their potential. I feel emotional having my sister-in-law and my wife in conversation like this, simply because of the depth of the creativity that is being explored, both in storytelling and in the kitchen. And I thank you both for, well, Yvonne, I thank you for marrying me. And Bibi, I thank you for uh, welcoming <laughs> me into your into your family. No, I mean that. I mean that, you know, it's, yeah. we share a lot of... Um, similarities in our truth in storytelling and in the faith that we have in humanity to sit around a table. Bibi, thank you for coming on our podcast. Thank you for having me. Gentle listener, if you're hearing this and you want to explore, reach out to uh, Chef Bibi here. She has an incredible way of telling your story through food. And I think as we end it, as well as that whatever your story is, whatever it is that you've been wanting to say, however you've been wanting to connect with your community, your story is important. And if it comes through 
culinary arts, as Bibi has found, or if it comes through film, if it comes through short story, novel writing, any of the arts, if it comes through activism, being a lawyer, being a teacher, pursue that. Yes. Chin chin. Chin chin. We really want to thank you for being with us this season. Thank you for accepting the invitation to eat at our table and to have a conversation with us about things that matter. We wish you the best with your own endeavors to take your rightful place in the room. Open doors and create access for others and take action by telling your own story. Please know that we believe in you. We know you can do it. You must only start. Dig, dig, yes, yes, and cheers, my friends. Ready, Jason? One, two, three. Please Please drink drink responsibly. This podcast is produced by the Lager Lane Group. We would like to thank Lager Lane Spirits co-producers and writers, Courtney Oliphant and Pepper Chambers Sirachi, co-producer Matthew Sirachi, podcast coordinator AJ Dinsmore, and Liam Allen for their original composition and vocals. We'd also like to thank Podcast Haven and our guest, Chef B.B. Huff of The Salted Parlor. I'd also like to take the time to send a special thanks and a special shout out to our entire team uh, behind the scenes here at Lager Lane Spirits for an awesome, awesome second season. That would be Courtney Oliphant, Pepper Chambers, Sirachi, Matthew Sirachi, and A.J. Densmore. Bravo. Thank you guys very much. Friendly listener, remember to grab the... Ala ala recipe and show notes by going to lagralanespirits.com and we will see you next time. And if you love the cocktail or the episode, please leave us a review. Go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash lagralanespirits and follow the instructions. <laughs>